Lucifer Room's Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Weirwood Compendium Part 7 Daenerys the Sea Dream Hey there, friends, patrons, supporters, and mythheads everywhere. It's your starry host, LML. So, funny story. I was uh, all set to bring a completely different episode to you this week. Other than the one I'm about to bring you, I was originally set to do an episode on the prologue of A Game of Thrones. And we were going to focus on the sort of parallel forwards and backwards nature of it. And was actually going to read it backwards. Uh, it's a pretty cool Easter egg that I found that you can actually reverse the order of the sequence in the prologue and find some interesting stuff. Then at the last second, sort of the night before, Saturday night, the night before I was going to perform it live, I was beset with doubts as I went back and started questioning some things that I thought I had figured out. And the more I thought about it and I was discussing with the myth heads sort of behind the scenes, I realized that I needed to take a little more time to understand it better before uh, before I was ready to wheel it out as a theory. So now luckily for me, I already had Weirwood Compendium 7 written, and that's what you're about to hear. So I actually pulled the audible on Sunday morning and decided to perform Weirwood Compendium 7 instead. So my great uh, reverse reading of the prologue, which I hyped all week, it is coming probably a few weeks from now, um, but uh, you know today it's going to be something different. So what we do have for you is the next Weirwood Compendium episode, following up on some of the Green Sea stuff that we did in Weirwood Compendium 6, as well as the Patch Face Roundtable. So uh, yeah, it's going to be a great episode, and I do have a couple of other announcements that I'd like to make before we get started. Um, one is that we, uh, we're going to start doing patron-only episodes, little mini essays that will be available only to our patrons. They will be available to patrons of all levels, um, and they'll just be little bits and pieces, little short bits of analysis that I've either done or have a mind to do that are kind of cool by themselves but just haven't fit into anything yet. Uh, and so uh, what I'm also doing is allowing all you patrons to vote and choose which one you'd like to hear. So for this first one, for example, uh, I gave you three choices. I gave you Jamie and Brienne, sword fighting in the river, Lord Titus Blackwood and his amazing mythical astronomy, Solar. Uh, solar being, you know, the uh, solarium, the room solar, not the... Anyways. And then also uh, Sarnor and the Fisher Queens as descendants of the great empire of the dawn. We had 92 votes total, which is great participation. Thanks, everybody who voted. And coming in third was Sarnor and the Fisher Queens with 25 votes. And uh, second and first place were only separated by one vote. So coming in second place was Lord Titus Blackwood with 33 votes. And in first place with 34 votes was Jamie and Brienne's sword fight in the river. So if you are a Mythical Astronomy patron, you can look forward to a short write-up on Jamie and Brienne sword fighting in the river coming to you sometime in the next week or so. And if you're not a Patreon subscriber, well, we're dangling the carrot temptingly in front of you, aren't we? You can sign up for any amount and get access to these. So 
That is our first announcement. Uh, second announcement, I'm going to finally start doing very short, bite-sized YouTube videos, which is something I've known I've needed to do for a long time. Uh, it's not a very good marketing strategy to only have hour-long material and greater. You know, of course, a lot of the good people of the world, uh, you know, have very little time, or perhaps they are not sure they should invest all that time in my stuff. So I'm going to diversify and start creating something called LML in 13, which will be little 13-minute YouTube videos with kind of bite-sized chunks of symbolism cut out of the bigger essays to sort of uh, trap and entrance and seduce people into coming in and joining the uh, ranks of the myth heads, if you will. So, for example, I've already done one script that's just comparing the others in the Kingsguard, just sort of highlighting uh, all that other symbolism that the Kingsguard wears, which we talked about in the Moons of Ice and Fire series, but just boiled down into a 13-minute chunk. So, And as some of those short patron-only essays might eventually turn into LML in 13 episodes as well, but they will be patron-only for quite a while, so... That's another thing that's coming. Also, uh, for $13 and up patrons, uh, Sanrixian, the Hand of the Dragon, and I are working on a set of 13 stickers, um, which we'll be mailing out different amounts of stickers to different Patreon levels. You might get three or seven or all 13. We're still sorting that out, but it's in the works. Um, we're going to use some of the drawings that Sanri has done during the live streams of mythical astronomy-based things or just fun things like Carthulhu. Uh, that have, you know, popped up through our little humor and our live sessions. So that's a fun thing to look forward to for patrons. Um, also, another Patreon-level, Patreon's had some weirdness lately. Uh, they switched their bank from an American bank to a European bank, and it's caused uh, some pledges to be declined. And there's even been some people that have had their pledge level lowered to a dollar without their knowledge or even canceled. Um, St. Rixian's pledge to somebody else was changed like this, and Stephen Stark was telling me about that too. So uh, just check your Patreon levels, everybody, and make sure you're signed up uh, in the way that you want to be. And I'll also remind you to download the Patreon app to your phone and set the notifications on. And that way, every time I put out one of my little announcements, you'll get a little buzz on your phone and you'll know that uh, I am trying to communicate with you and tell you something about mythical astronomy the uh you won't get very many notifications it's very occasional a couple times a week so definitely don't be afraid of it if you are signed up for patreon uh getting the app is the best way to get the most out of it we can communicate better and all that kind of stuff so uh last thing i will tell you is that um last week um maybe a week and a half ago by the time you hear this but i did a cool live stream on in deep geeks youtube channel we talked about house lannister and related matters for a couple of hours and then I uh, got Robert to go another hour on Magic Swords and Dawn and Lightbringer and stuff, and it was really a, a good session. I'm not sure. Both of us were just feeling good and spry, and I always love talking to Robert. So that YouTube channel, if, if you're not aware, is called In Deep Geek. Very easy to find, and our live stream will be one of the last ones. It's about House Lannister. So just a heads up, check that one out. I also did a live stream on Joe Magician's channel. Last week, uh, we reprised The Crowded Couch, which is me, Joe Magician, and Bookshelf Stud. And we talked about Joe's latest uh, Killing of a Ranger, which is about the Waymar prologue episode. And uh, he, so check out both Joe's video on that and then our live stream. And that is on the Joe Magician YouTube channel. So the last thing I'll tell you is that this is an entirely new recording because although I did record my live performance yesterday on Sunday... Unfortunately, there was some annoying microphone 
sort of bumping noise that was popping up all through the recording. I think the microphone stand was touching the little floor mat that I stand on in front of my cool standing desk, and it was making this annoying low-pitched kind of bumping sound like the entire recording. So when I opened it up to edit it last night, uh, no good. Had to flush it all. So I'm re-recording it all here on Monday morning for you. It's the same material, but, uh, you know, just uh, re-recording it. So if you do want to see the live version, it's on the YouTube channel like usual. And we did do a little bit of follow-up discussion afterwards with Storm, Emma, and San Rixian. And, uh, by the way, I'll also go ahead and say the thank yous. Thank you very much to Emma of the Red Mice at Play WordPress blog, which hopefully you guys have checked out by now, Red Mice at Play. And uh, she's doing the very excellent vocal readings, as you'll soon see. She is... A treat to listen to. She is a great performer and a great writer as well. And also like to thank Stanley Black for our intro music, John Walsh for our flamenco music, all of the myth heads of the Patreon community for their steadfast support, the lifeblood of mythical astronomy, which keeps this whole engine running. And of course, I will also thank everyone who listens and shares and enjoys mythical astronomy and symbolism the way that I do, because you all are my people. So with the thank yous out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into Daenerys the Sea Dreamer, Weirwood Compendium 7. When we last left off in Weirwood Compendium 6, the devil in the deep green sea, our minds were reeling at the enormity of the green sea wordplay. Does this really go everywhere water goes? Lakes, rivers, oceans, ponds, drinking and drowning and bathing and melting? Do we really have to look sideways at every liquid that we come across? Well, basically, the answer is yes. We do at least have to take a sideways glance at all of these things. But as you know, what we're really looking for is a confluence of multiple identifiable symbols and symbolic acts. Just because someone gets their throat cut doesn't mean they're manifesting weirwood stigmata and symbolically going into the weirwood net. But when red-headed Catelyn Tully gets her throat cut, has bloody hands and bloody tears and bloody hair and a bloody mouth... The full weirwood stigmata, in other words, and then gets thrown into a river named the Green Fork, and then pops up in a cave threaded through with weirwood roots. Well, we can begin to feel pretty confident in concluding that her death is indeed meant to symbolize the death of the weirwood goddess archetype and her subsequent entrance into the green sea of the weirwood net, the realm of the green seers. Now, what actually happened is that we first identified Cat as playing the role of the Nissa Nissa Weirwood Goddess figure without any of the Green Sea wordplay, way back in the Weirwood Goddess series, which you've hopefully already listened to. In those episodes, we discovered a whole treasure trove of mostly red-headed women who seemed to manifest both Nissa Nissa symbolism and Child of the Forest or Elf Woman symbolism, all of whom undergo this Weirwood stigmata. It happens so many times, and so distinctively, and always amidst metaphorical Lightbringer forging scenes, that we really can't help but come to the conclusion that Nissa Nissa was part child of the forest, and that the magic ritual, which was the death of Nissa Nissa and the forging of Lightbringer, was an event which was tied to the Weirwoods, or even centered around them. Then, when we consider the Green Sea wordplay, and observe Cat's body being thrown into, and then resurrected from the Green Fork of the Trident... It simply confirms and enhances the conclusions that we already drew from her weirwood stigmata death scene. Namely, Nissa Nissa goes into the realm of the Green Seers after she dies. 
even taking a step back from the specific green sea, green seer wordplay, it's still easy to see the classic symbolic function of the river here. Cat goes into the river when she dies and is resurrected when she is pulled out of the river. It's like the river Acheron, which serves as the border to the realm of Hades in Greek mythology, to name one example. In other words, you can see that the Green Sea wordplay is really just building upon the foundation of a classic mytheme, that of the river, which represents the border between life and death. It's really just another version of the Veil of Tears that we talked about in the Signs and Portals series. Besides Nissa Nissa figures getting thrown into rivers like Cat, we've also seen that many Nissa Nissa figures have various kinds of mermaid symbolism, including many of the magical or divine wives of legend, such as Elenai of the Durn Durndin myth, the Grey King's mermaid wife, or the two aquatic women tied to the Andalmyth of Huger Hill slash Huko, which would be the swan maidens that Huko sacrificed, and the woman with eyes like blue pools that the maid of the Faith of the Seven brought forth for Huger Hill to marry. And as we noted last time, we can even observe that Catalan's fish symbolism that comes to her by way of her Tully fish sigil makes her a grisly sort of mermaid or fish person, or even a catfish, if you prefer, when she is thrown into the river. We've also seen the classic sea serpent goddess archetype put into good use as a way of implying the moon goddess going into the ocean. And we've seen that with Daenerys in particular, who is, of course, the most prominent Nissa Nissa figure in the series. All of these things, the drownings, the mermaid imagery, the sea serpent imagery, they've accumulated throughout our study of Nissa Nissa figures, and they've been cluing us into the fact that Nissa Nissa has a watery side to her story, or at least her symbolism. Then, when we reconsider these things with the green sea metaphor in mind, well, it's kind of like everything snaps into place. The mermaid and the sea dragon goddess symbolism suddenly make a lot more sense. They're implying Nissa Nissa as a denizen of the Green Sea. There's yet another line of symbolism that the Green Sea wordplay is best buddies with, BFFs, if you will, and that's the simple idea of the moon drowning in the sea. We caught on to that one early on, way back in the very first few Bloodstone Compendium episodes, and we know that there is abundant and repeated symbolic evidence that at least one of those pesky moon meteors landed in or near the sea, causing huge tidal waves and some amount of land collapse. Both the Arm of Dorne and the Iron Islands, especially at Pike, show evidence of such traumatic, sudden land collapse, and both are festively decorated with moon meteor symbolism. So, this part of the moon drowning idea seems to be fairly literal. Some pieces of the moon seem to have fallen into or near the sea. After all, an impacting meteor has basically a two-in-three chance of hitting water when it hits the Earth, and I don't imagine it would be much different on Planetos. Of course, the moon can also be seen as an analog of Nissa Nissa, and that broken bit of moon falling from the sky and into the sea can be seen as a representation of Nissa Nissa falling into the green sea at her death, kind of like a gigantic version of Catelyn falling into the green fork. Well, exactly like a giant version of that, in fact. Once again, we see that the Green Sea wordplay fits harmoniously with all the other symbolism that is already going on. The idea of moon meteors falling into the sea, in this case, while also enhancing it. And that's actually where we left off in Weirwood Compendium 6, with Nissa Nissa figures drowning and dying and doing weirwood goddess things. We took a quick look at several of them, and then we took a longer look at Asha Greyjoy, because the Wayward Bride chapter is just so dank with ocean of trees, sea of green goodness. 
The conclusion of that chapter was that amazing scene where Asha sees burning stags in a golden wood as she imagines the trumpets of the drowned god's hall blowing at her apparent death, and all of that following her being backed against a tree, tangled in its roots, and struck with a lightning-like blow. Asha actually utters such things as drown me for a fool and splash some blood upon the moon with me. It's just so good. The trees, as Ocean quotes, are equally fantastic and mirror the lines from John's scenes north of the wall at the Fist of the First Men. Now, before we discussed the drowning and bathing mermaid Nissa Nissa figures, we took a look at the dying Azor High people who have a knack for dying in rivers, dying in burning boats on rivers, drowning in rivers that catch on fire amidst a bunch of burning boats, drowning on blood and wildfire, and of course, drinking from the green fountain. And not just dying in the sea, as it were, but being reborn in the sea or from the sea, according to the prophecy of Azor Ahai being reborn in the sea. Just as it was with the green sea symbolism of all the Nissa Nissa figures, applying the green sea lens to all of these watery Azor Ahai deaths and rebirths simply confirms what we've already discovered by other means, that Azor Ahai essentially died to enter the weirwood net, and that his death was more of a transformation one tied to or even facilitated by the Weirwoods. That was basically the overarching topic of the first four episodes of the Weirwood Compendium series, and I think the evidence was already quite convincing. And then the green sea symbolism comes along and pounds the nail in the coffin, so to speak, because a Weirwood tree is like a coffin for green seers. Anyway, today we're going to talk about Daenerys. Daenerys is the best because she combines the Nissa Nissa dying in the Green Sea to forge Lightbringer symbolism with the Azor High being reborn in the Green Sea symbolism, and she does it in spectacular fashion, of course. Tracing out all of Dany's Green Sea symbolism will also have us doing a fair amount of follow-up on Weirwood Compendium 5 to ride the Green Dragon, because a lot of Dany's Green Seer symbolism flows through Rhaegal. We've already seen that Rhaegal, as well as Rhaego, the prophesied stallion who mounts the world, are basically fountains of green seer symbolism. So it figures that they would be showing us some quality green sea wordplay, and indeed they do. When we read Danny chapters, we find such amazing things as Daenerys, the stormborn dragon, wearing a green dress and a green dragon, on her way to talk to old men in wooden thrones in a city by the shores of the Jade Sea, just by way of example. Now, I do have to warn you, the amount of green seer symbolism around Danny is almost shocking. It's so heavy and so constant. It starts with her very first chapters, continues throughout all five books, and ramps up harder than ever in her final A Dance with Dragons chapter, where she eats those green berries and trips her balls off. Metaphorical balls. In any case, we aren't going to get to all of it today by any means. It's going to take at least two episodes to get the main stuff out of the way, and then more will be filtering into other episodes. We've already led up to it a bit by exploring all the green seer symbolism of her green dragon, Rhaegal, as well as her stillborn son, Rhaego. But when we look at the green seer symbolism directly applied to Daenerys herself, I promise you, your head will spin, and you'll want me to start making tinfoil with all due haste. Well, just reserve judgment about what it could mean for Danny in particular for now, and let's just consider this first as a commentary on the Nissa Nissa archetype that Danny plays. And if you're all good little myth heads, then perhaps we'll get around to speculating about whether or not her potentially significant amount of Blackwood blood might be stirring and giving her the potential to access the same green sea or genetics as Blood Raven. <sighs> because it's possible. It's really not crackpot at all. 
Now, before we go head over heels interpreting everything that happens to Danny in the green Dothraki Sea as containing a hidden message about green seers and the weirwood nut, let's consider that Danny is already well established as a weirwood goddess figure, even beyond being the mother to green dragons like Rhaegal. I'm referring, of course, to Danny's horse heart eating ceremony, which San Rixian was good enough to spend all three hours of our live stream yesterday drawing. So I highly recommend checking out either the text version of this essay at luciferminslightbringer.com or the video itself, because, uh, yeah, it's really something else. In any case, the horse heart eating ceremony, which we covered a couple of episodes ago, as well as previously in the Bloodstone Compendium, that's the place wherein we get the prophecy of the stallion who mounts the world, which is basically the Dothraki version of the prince that was promised prophecy. Daenerys has bloody hands and a bloody mouth like a weirwood tree, and she's drinking blood and consuming flesh as the weirwoods do, both literally and metaphorically. And she's eating a bloody heart, which even adds the implication of a bloody heart tree, all of which makes this a grade A weirwood stigmata scene. Consider also that Daenerys declares herself newly impregnated with the fire of the Solar King as she has this stigmata. Remember, she says, the prince rides inside me as soon as she's done eating the horse heart. This is a match for both the Lightbringer forging mythology as well as the idea of the Weirwoods being invaded and set on fire by Azor High when he used Nissa Nissa's death to essentially invade the Weirwood net. Compare it to Thistle's Weirwood stigmata, where Vermeer's spirit literally invades her flesh... This also depicts Azor High's fiery spirit invading the Weirwood Tree and using Nissa Nissa's death to do so. Here in this scene in Vase Dothrak, we see Danny manifesting the stigmata and turning into the bloody Weirwood Tree right after she's been invaded by the fiery seed of the Solar King, which basically is just a nicer version of the same symbolism we saw with Thistle. The main point is that Danny's stigmata is no random occurrence. It occurs during a symbolic Lightbringer forging, and it's consistent with all the other Weirwood Stigmata scenes. Trust me, it matches all the other ones. Let's not digress too far, but I would encourage you, after this episode, to read back over the Weirwood Goddess series, or the Venus of the Woods series, and you will see just how well it lines up. One other thing to note about this horse-heart-eating Weirwood Stigmata scene is that, like many of Danny's best scenes in the Green Dothraki Sea, it occurs in the first book, which implies that Martin has been weaving this green sea, green seer wordplay, as well as all the other green seer clues like the weirwood stigmata, into the plot of his primary avatar of Nissa Nissa from the very beginning. I mean, this makes sense to me because we are increasingly coming to see that Nissa Nissa's connection to the weirwoods is one of the most important aspects of the entire long night Azor High Lightbringer ball of wax. George would have conceived of it early on, being so important. And after today's episode, I feel confident that you will agree with me that he did. All right, so let's get into our first section. Sailing the Dothraki Sea. This section is brought to you by our dragon patrons. Bronze Stares of the Lily White Scales and Bronze Horns, Wing Bones, and Spinal Crest. A wise old dragon who riddles with sphinxes. Vesperis the Nightbringer, the Shadowfire Dragon, whose scales are dark as smoke, whose horns, wing bones, and spinal crest are the color of molten silver, and whose eyes are two black moons. And Falcoris the Shag Dragon, whose black stone scales are covered in purple and green 70s shag carpeting, and whose eyes, horns, wing bones, and spinal crest are as gray as a puff of smoke.
The green sea reborn from the sea, symbolism of Daenerys Targaryen, is immediately apparent. She was reborn in the Dothraki Sea, which is often described as green. About half of Danny's major scenes occur in this green grass sea, in fact, including her symbolic death and rebirth in Drogo's pyre and the waking of dragons, her starry visions in her last A Dance with Dragons chapter, and many other interesting things besides that we'll take a look at today and in future episodes. As we know, Azor High is a hero prophesied to be reborn in the sea, and if George is thinking about one specific person who fulfills all of the Azor High reborn prophetic checkmarks in the most clear way possible then it can only be Daenerys Targaryen, who, after all, did wake dragons from stone under a bleeding star, and the fact that this took place in the green Dothraki Sea means that she also checks out as a hero reborn in the sea. Illyrio sums it up well when speaking to Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons. The frightened child who sheltered in my manse died on the Dothraki Sea and was reborn in blood and fire. This dragon queen who wears her name is a true Targaryen. Reborn in blood and fire after dying on the Dothraki Sea. So, there you go. In her the prophecies are fulfilled. She already met all the standard Azor High Reborn criteria there, so adding in the Azor High Reborn in the Sea aspect that Stannis speaks of just makes the alchemical wedding that much more of a home run for the rebirth of Azor High. We're about to dive into Danny's first chapter in the Dothraki Sea, which is the pivotal Danny 3 chapter of A Game of Thrones, which, by the way, I spent three hours breaking down with poor Quentin and Brendan Beefish on their Not a Podcast podcast, which you can find in the Not a Podcast podcast feed. And we're about to revisit that chapter and find a ton of fantastic green sea, green seer wordplay. But before we do, I'll share perhaps my, no, definitely, definitely my favorite example of the Dothraki Green Sea wordplay in action, which comes, actually, in a Victarion chapter of A Dance with Dragons. The Silver Queen is gone, the Ketcher's master told him. She flew away upon her dragon beyond the Dothraki Sea. Where is this Dothraki Sea? he demanded. I will sail the Iron Fleet across it and find the Queen wherever she may be. The fisherman laughed aloud. That would be a sight worth seeing. The Dothraki Sea is made of grass, fool. He should not have said that. Victorian took him around the throat with his burned hand and lifted him bodily into the air. Slamming him back against the mast, he squeezed until the youngishman's face turned as black as the fingers digging into his flesh. And then Victorian tosses his body into the sea, another offering to the drowned god. There's actually a nice symbolic parallel going on here. The fisherman tells Victarion the Barbarian that Danny flew away on her black dragon into the Dothraki Sea, which symbolizes both Nissa Nissa fleeing into the Green Sea, as well as a moon meteor dragon landing in the ocean. And then Vic mimics that symbolism by making a moon sacrifice out of the fisherman and throwing him into the sea. So let me explain. He lifts the fisherman up against the mast of the ship, which, of course, is like a tree trunk, and then he strangles him, which gives the fisherman the Odin hanging on the gallows tree symbolism that, in A Song of Ice and Fire terms, refers to green seers being hung on the weirwood roots like Bloodraven. Then Victarion throws him into the sea and to the god beneath the waves, implying the fisherman as one who has been sacrificed to the weirwoods, to the tree that he was strangled on, and then thrown into their green sea. The fisherman's face 
is turned black during the strangling, just as the moon turns black and then turns into black meteors. And his black moon face going into the sea is a perfect match for black Drogon the dragon flying off into the Dothraki Sea. So there's a lot of nice parallels going on there. Now the poor fisherman shouldn't have talked back to Victarion, it's true. He wasn't a very good judge of character. But he was technically correct that the Dothraki Sea is made of grass. I'm sorry, I just can't help but find Victarion a little funny. He's just so literal. And this scene makes the Dothraki Sea joke so well. It is indeed a sea made of grass, and Vic would indeed have a hard time sailing it with an ironborn longship. He might have better luck, though, if he were to reach further back into ironborn shipbuilding history and attempt to use a weirwood boat like the Grey King. That might be the right one for sailing the Green Sea, if you will. Note also the way that Martin is trying to show us the Green Sea wordplay here. In the midst of the confusion about whether or not Vic can sail the Dothraki Sea, the fisherman says, Well, that would be a sight worth seeing. The Dothraki Sea is made of grass. It's one of many examples of Martin using both forms of C-S-E-E and C-S-E-A next to one another in hopes that the wordplay might click in our brains. It's very similar to when Micken, the Winterfell smith, says, The sea, is it? Happens I always wanted to see the sea. But hey, look, don't, don't blame poor Victarion for taking things too literally. After all, not only are the plains of the Dothraki grasslands like a sea... The sea can also be like the grasslands. And here's the quote. To the Dothraki, water that a horse could not drink was something foul. The heaving gray-green plains of the ocean filled them with superstitious loathing. That's a nice one because instead of the Dothraki grasslands being compared to a sea, it's instead a sea described as a gray-green plain, as though it were a grassy plain. We also know that gray-green is a specific color expression applied to the wood very, very often. And it also applies to the idea of green boys and gray beards, which touches on the whole gray king, green garth dichotomy that Crowfood's daughter of the Disputed Lands YouTube channel loves to explore. But I digress. So that's enough warm up. Let's go ahead and talk about Danny's swim in the Dothraki Sea. The first time we ever see the sea, if you will, is in that amazing Danny 3 chapter of A Game of Thrones. And the analogy is laid out pretty clearly right from the get-go, right from the first words of the chapter. The chapter opens with Sir Jorah talking about the sea. The Dothraki Sea, Sir Jorah Mormont said, as he reined to a halt beside her on the top of the ridge. Beneath them, the plain stretched out, immense and empty, a vast, flat expanse that reached to the distant horizon and beyond. It was a sea, Danny thought. Past here, there were no hills, no mountains, no trees, nor cities, nor roads, only the endless grasses, the tall blades rippling like waves when the winds blew. It's so green, she said. Here and now, Sir Jorah agreed. You ought to see it when it blooms, all dark red flowers from horizon to horizon, like a sea of blood. Come the dry season, and the world turns the colour of old bronze. It's just so green, she said. Yeah, it's, it's a green sea. It stretches beyond the horizon, calling to mind the green sea language of John's scene at the Fist of the First Men, where, after saying that 
the wood went on as far as John could see. It says that a thousand leaves fluttered, and for a moment the forest seemed a deep green sea, storm-tossed and heaving, eternal and unknowable. This green sea is the cosmic sea, and it exists outside of time and space, if you will. And that's emphasized in these quotes and others like them, with phrases like eternal, unknowable, and as far as the eye can see. Even more important is the second part of Jorah's speech about the Dothraki Sea. It's a sea that turns to blood when it flowers. Think about that. When it flowers, it becomes a sea of blood. Hello, moon blood symbolism. Now in Westeros, as we know, a woman's menstruation is known by the euphemism moon blood, and the first time she gets it, it's called her flowering. So this sea of bloody flowers is definitely a sea of moon blood. Thus, as Danny gazes out at the green Dothraki Sea for the first time, the idea of moon blood filling the green sea is strongly suggested and even highlighted. Ultimately, this is a reference to the concept of Nissa Nissa's magical blood flowing into and merging with the green sea of the Weirbunet. That's a pattern we've seen a few times now. So this is a really pivotal moment here, with Danny perched on the edge of the green Dothraki Sea and about to begin her journey. She's just married Cal Drogo and just consummated their marriage and is now heading into the Green Sea. This is the basic pattern we've seen with all the other Nissanissa moon maidens. They do a lightbringer forging ritual, then head into a body of water that symbolizes the Weirbunet. Danny's wedding and intercourse with Drogo gives us the lightbringer forging, and of course her wedding also overlays in many ways with the alchemical wedding where the dragons are hatched and Danny is symbolically reborn. So it fits the pattern pretty well. Lightbringer forging with the Solar King, and then into the Green Sea. Danny's horse heart scene follows a very similar pattern, with Danny announcing her pregnancy just as she manifests the Weirwood Stigmata that implies her as merging with the Weirwood Net. And then, of course, she goes and bathes in the womb of the world right after, still covered in blood, which adds the aquatic and bathing symbolism. And trust me, we will circle back to that scene fairly soon to harvest all the amazing green seer stuff going on there. Another way we might describe this pivotal moment with Danny getting set to plunge into the Great Grass Sea is to say that her foolish brother Viserys has sold her for a golden crown, an idea which is emphasized all throughout Danny's A Game of Thrones chapters. This creates a strong parallel to Dantos selling his moon maiden, Sansa, to Peter. For the price of 30,000 golden dragons. Both depict a foolish, would-be stealer of the fire of the gods who sells his moon maiden for gold and receives an ignominious death instead. One of the three arrows that killed Dantos actually struck him in the leftmost golden crown of the House Hollard sigil on his breast, which draws an even stronger parallel to Viserys selling his moon maiden and receiving a golden crown of death. Had tip Archmaster Emma. One even thinks of Maggie the Frog's prophecy to Cersei about the death of her children. Gold shall be their crowns, and gold their shrouds. We can also observe that Sansa and Danny are both sent into the sea and sold to a sea lord. Peter sails aboard the Merling King as he takes possession of Sansa on the Blackwater Bay, and he also carries the Titan of Bravo symbolism with him via his father's sigil, and I think the Titan is certainly a type of sea lord. While Drogo, on the other hand, is the lord of the Dothraki Sea and immediately takes Danny into that sea after they are wed, slash Danny is sold. 
There is even good cause to believe that the house with the red door in Bravos that Danny grew up in was located in none other than the Sea Lord's Palace, which would be a nice fit with the symbolism that we're talking about here. Yet another parallel between Dantos and Viserys comes with Viserys being called a fool, which happens many times, and rightfully so, and his stubborn refusal to change into Dothraki clothing leaves his court clothes turning to rags before long, with rags and patchwork being a part of the fool body of symbolism. Before we move on from Jorah's little speech about the various kinds of grasses which opens the chapter, I'll just briefly point out that this is also the quote which contains the famous lines about Oceans of ghost grass, taller than a man on horseback with stalks as pale as milk glass. It murders all other grass and glows in the dark with the spirits of the damned. It's an ocean of grass, just like the Dothraki Sea, but this time it's ghost grass. And it's like a cross between the others, dawn, and, well, grass. Point being, the oceans of ghost grass line can now be seen as yet another clue about the others coming from a part of the weirwood net from the Green Sea. Because it's oceans of ghost grass. And I suspect that this part of the weirwood net that the others come from could even be a part that they are killing or freezing somehow in accordance with this prophecy of the ghost grass killing or covering the entire world and killing everything. I mean, that's actually kind of a major revelation, but it's also somewhat beside the point, and so we'll have to come back to it another time. An other time, yes. After Danny shivers and says, Ooh, I don't want to think about things like ghost grass, brr, we actually do catch sight of the others. That's right, they're lurking about. The next paragraph begins with... She heard the sound of voices and turned to look behind her. She and Mormont had outdistanced the rest of their party, and now the others were climbing the ridge below them. As with most potential others, double entendres like this, it's at first hard to know whether it was intentional or not, but coming directly on the heels of Martin's choice to include the obvious other's clue of the ghost grass in Jorah's Introduction to the Green Sea speech... It kind of makes sense to drop little clues that, you know, maybe the others are lurking around here somewhere. After that last quote, Martin immediately begins building up the contrast between Viserys, the fish out of water, if you will, and Danny, who is already adapting to the Greengrass Sea. Eerie and the other young Dothraki archers are called as fluid as centaurs, a nice way of describing them as watery horse people. They're fluid centaurs, if you will the kind that can ride the waves of the Dothraki Sea. Horse people that ride in the sea might be seen as seahorse people anyway, so they might as well be fluid centaurs. And if you're thinking about House Valerion, the dragon-blooded house with a seahorse sigil, that's right, don't worry, we're going to talk about them next episode. A whole bunch. It's coming, don't worry. House Valerion special. So then after Viserys starts to pitch one of his usual snits, Danny decides not to let him ruin the day and instead rides off alone into the Great Grass Sea for fun. After a bit of flashback recalling Danny's adjustment to Dothraki life, which, by the way, includes that dragon dream where she's burned and melted by the dragon, but yet feels cleansed and renewed, which is part of an important bathing theme for Danny. More on that later. We get some really good Green Sea language. At the bottom of the ridge, the grasses rose around her, tall and supple. 
Danny slowed to a trot and rode out onto the plain, losing herself in the green, blessedly alone. In the Calasar she was never alone. Carl Drogo came to her only after the sun went down, for her handmaids fed her and bathed her and slept by the door of her tent. Danny, it seems, is just never alone. Her handmaids are always bathing her, don't you know? The dream of being melted and cleansed by the dragon that came a page or two prior also hits on this bathing theme, which is really just one way to see Nissa Nissa's transformation inside the green sea of the Weirbanet. We see that symbolism coming to life here in Danny as she immerses herself in the green Dothraki Sea. Losing herself in the green alludes to the dissolution of self to merge with the Weirbanet, I would say, a tip ravenous reader. And that's, of course, exactly what happens to a green seer when he dies. He loses him or herself in the green, in the green sea. If Nissa Nissa went into the Weirbanet when she died, then it makes sense to see her losing herself in the green, I think. Skipping over a couple of sentences, we'll pick the quote back up. She rode on, merging herself deeper in the Dothraki Sea. The green swallowed her up. The air was rich with the scents of earth and grass, mixed with the smell of horse flesh and Danny's sweat and the oil in her hair. Dothraki smells. They seemed to belong here. Danny breathed it all in, laughing. She had a sudden urge to feel the ground beneath her, to curl her toes in that thick black soil. Swinging down from her saddle, she let the silver graze while she pulled off her high boots. Danny is not only losing herself in the sea, now she's submersing and submerging herself deeper into the green sea of grass. There's also a moment later where Viserys calls Danny out for looking like a Dothraki and, regarding herself barefoot and wearing Dothraki riding leathers, Danny agrees and observes that she looked as though she belonged here. Here in the green sea that she's submersed in, it's where she belongs. The natives of the Green Sea of the Weirwoods are, of course, the children of the forest, and we've seen the mermaid symbolism used as a way to imply Nissa Nissa as a denizen of the sea, i.e. a denizen of the realm of the Green Seers. It's worth noting that Danny is something of a child woman, too, at this point. Recall Illyrio referring to Danny as the frightened child who sheltered in my manse, and then was reborn in blood and fire on the Dothraki Sea. Danny is a child woman who belongs in the Green Sea. If you catch my drift, and George Martin's drift. Drift. It's a green sea joke. Anyways, my favorite part is when she takes off her boots in order to feel the ground beneath her and curls her toes in the soil. Almost like a tree taking root. Nissa Nissa is the weirwood goddess, after all, and the entire point of the weirwood stigmata symbolism is that it shows a Nissa Nissa figure turning into a weirwood tree. And just when Danny's toes start taking root in the soil... The Ironborn mythology starts happening. Viserys came upon her, as sudden as a summer storm, his horse rearing beneath him as he reined up too hard. A dragon that's like a storm. Well, that sounds like the storm god's thunderbolt, which we think is really a meteor dragon. The one that sets the tree ablaze and creates the weirwood symbol. He's reining up too hard. Like meteor storm hard, you think? Get it? Like... Meteor rain, hard, hard rain. Anyways, that's it's about as hard as a storm god gets. And you know what would really be great is if George would, like, I don't know, mix in some Azora High stabbing Nissa Nissa symbolism and then overlay it with this storm dragon striking the tree idea. 
just to show us that Nissa Nissa is like the tree and the falling thunderbolt meteor dragon is like Lightbringer. His hand went under her vest, his fingers digging painfully into her breast. Do you hear me? Danny shoved him away, hard. Oh, okay, going for the breast, is it? Viserys does this to Danny a few times, and each time he does, it is A, sexual abuse, and B, a symbolic reference to Azor High stabbing Nissa Nissa after asking her to bear her breast, which also qualifies as abuse, as I've maintained from the beginning. Here's the thing, though. The weirwood goddess Nissa Nissa bared her breast, yes, but then got stabbed in the heart, and this bloody heart symbol seems like yet another reference to the heart trees which are all bloody. It makes sense, of course, as Nissa Nissa figures always manifest their bloody weirwood stigmata during Lightbringer forging scenes. Think of Danny eating the bloody horse heart to get her stigmata, for example. Danny is kind of over Viserys' bullshit at this point and shoves him away, good for her. And then we get even more Ironborn mythology. Viserys stared at her, his lilac eyes incredulous. She had never defied him, never fought back. Rage twisted his features. He would hurt her now, and badly she knew that. Crack. The whip made a sound like thunder. The coil took Viserys around the throat and yanked him backward. He went sprawling in the grass, stunned and choking. The Dothraki riders hooted at him as he struggled to free himself. Recall that it was the fiery lash of Cal Drogo's ghost rising from the alchemical wedding bonfire that seemed to snake down and crack open the first dragon's egg. And the second one cracked open with a sound like thunder. Here in the Dothraki Sea, we have a thunderous whip cracking against a dragon, Viserys, and this comes as Danny was worried about waking the dragon of Viserys' anger. Instead, it looks like foolish Viserys has gotten more fire of the gods than he bargained for, which is kind of a preview of things to come. The whip coils around his throat like a noose as he chokes and struggles for breath, sprawled out on the grass of the sea, and then he's on his knees like a sacrifice or a praying man. And it says, Jogo gave a pull on the whip, yanking Viserys around like a puppet on a string. He went sprawling again, freed from the leather embrace, a thin line of blood under his chin where the whip had cut deep. That thin line of blood under his chin is a red smile for Viserys, a weirwood sacrifice symbol to go along with his hanging by whip. Then we get a clue about Viserys as someone who is rejected or spit out of the weirwood net, as with Danny pushing him away a moment earlier. He was a pitiful thing. He had always been a pitiful thing. Why had she never seen that before? There was a hollow place inside her where her fear had been. Hollow, like a tree that people can live inside, perhaps, or like a moon egg whose dragon has been woken. Then as Danny condemns him to walk behind the Kalasar, Danny asks Jorah if he'll get lost, and there is talk of waking dragons and even waking the dead. Jorah laughed. Where else should he go? If he cannot find the Kalasar, the Kalasar will most surely find him. It's hard to drown in the Dothraki Sea, child. Danny saw the truth of that. The Kalasar was like a city on the march, but it did not march blindly. Always, scouts ranged far ahead of the main column, alert for any sign of game or prey or enemies, while outriders guarded their flanks. They missed nothing, not here, in this land, the place where they had come from. These planes were a part of them, and of her now. 
I hid him, she said, wonder in her voice. Now that it was over, it seemed like some strange dream that she had dreamed. Sir Jorah, do you think... He'll be so angry when he gets back. She shivered. I woke the dragon, didn't I? Sir Jorah snorted. <laughs> Can you wake the dead girl? Your brother Rhaegar was the last dragon, and he died on the trident. Viserys is less than the shadow of a snake. Okay, so a bunch of things just happened. Jorah says, somewhat ironically, that it's hard to drown in the Dothraki Sea. It's actually implied that a green seer or skin changer can indeed drink too deeply of the green fountain and lose themselves. Ultimately, Viserys drowns in molten gold on the Dothraki Sea, so there you go. Then we'll get the all-important line about the plains being a part of the Dothraki and a part of Danny. The Green Sea is a part of Nissa Nissa, just as Nissa Nissa looks like she belongs in the sea. The sea is part of her now because she only goes into the sea after forging Lightbringer and undergoing death transformation. After that, Nissa Nissa pretty much is the sea, and the sea is Nissa Nissa. But now that it's over, this whole event in the Green Dothraki Sea it seems like it was some strange dream that Danny had dreamed. Yikes! Danny is dreaming in the Green Sea, like a green dreamer, and in fact, she's dreaming of the Green Sea. So once again, we're presented with the idea that the Green Sea itself is like a dream of Nissa Nissa, that the Weirwood Net can be thought of as the mind of Nissa Nissa in a sense. It compares well to Asha Greyjoy dreaming of the burning wood that contains the burning stag and the fiery hearts right after she played the role of a tree woman sacrificed Nissa Nissa. The woods that is like a sea exists inside the dream of Nissa Nissa, in other words. In fact, Daenerys herself is really quite the dreamer, and that's where the title of this episode comes from. Everything she needed to know to wake the dragons basically came to her in dreams, and she continues to dream throughout the series. Now, perhaps Quaithe was helping a bit, and definitely I'd say that's the case, but the point is, Danny has a ton of visionary dreams, basically more than anyone. Danny's historical Targaryen namesake, Danny's the Dreamer, foresaw the doom of Valeria and, in fact, made enough prophecies to fill an entire book, including, in all likelihood, the prince that was promised prophecy. Danny's the Dreamer is most likely intended to be seen as a parallel figure to Daenerys, and I think reflects the important role of dreams and visions in the arc of Daenerys and, of course, Nissa Nissa, who dreams the Green Sea. So, after Danny pronounces it all a dream, she asks Jorah if she might have woken any dragons. And Jorah asks her in return if she can wake the dead. This is Weirwood Goddess resurrecting the Night's Watch Green Zombies talk, if you ask me. The Green Zombie Watchmen always have that fiery dragon symbolism, like the burning Scarecrow Brothers in John's dream of wielding the burning red sword, or like Beric the fiery Scarecrow Knight with the burning red sword, so waking dragons and waking the dead, they're the same thing in the context of the weirwood goddess, raising the green zombies from inside the green sea. And she does that after she dies and merges with the green sea. Jorah is referring to Rhaegar here as the dead dragon that might need to be resurrected, but it's actually Rhaegar's son Jon Snow who is the dragon in need of resurrection. And, of course, it will be a different weirwood goddess figure, Melisandre, who will most likely play a part in his zombification. Just a nice little parallel toss-in for you there. On top of that, we do get a throwaway line about Rhaegar dying on the trident here. 
As we know, Danny's naming of Regal, the Green Dragon, after her brother's death on the, quote, green banks of the Trident, acts as a kind of symbolic resurrection for Rhaegar. And it happens here in the Green Dothraki Sea, a la Azor Ahai being reborn from the sea. In fact, we're right about to talk a little more about that rascally green dragon in just a second, because I actually had to save all the good Rhaegal stuff that pertains to the green sea wordplay until after I unveiled the green sea wordplay. That's right, I did an entire episode on Rhaegal the Green Dragon and how he's dedicated to expressing green seer symbolism and didn't even talk about the green sea wordplay. So you know that there's going to be some more investigation to be done there, and indeed there is. And just to finish off this chapter, I will inform you that we have a bath, a real one this time, with soap and water. It's totally tame, with no symbolism at all. No, wait, oh no. This is the bath where she hears the story about the moon cracking to give birth to dragons. Oh my. And that is a George Decay, oh my. We better look again. So after Danny's confrontation with Viserys and a bit of frank conversation with Jorah about the chances of Viserys ever retaking the Seven Kingdoms, which, spoiler alert, are not good, Danny rides away, eventually arriving at her tent, which has been pitched by a spring-fed pool, because why not? There she takes a hot bath, and her handmaidens tell her about that old second moon that wandered too close to the sun. This is but one of many parallel Danny bathing scenes. And this one is kind of the best because she symbolizes a drowning moon maiden just as she hears about the destruction of the second moon, which was scalded and cracked open like an egg. We know this scene well as it's the centerpiece of my very first theory, but now we can see all the intense Nissa Nissa in the Green Sea symbolism that leads up to it. Pretty fun, huh? This chapter started with a ton of green grass sea symbolism, which is all about Nissa Nissa immersing herself in the Green Sea of the Weirwood and finishes with the comparatively mundane metaphor of a moon maiden taking a bath. But they're both the same metaphor, and pretty much any time Danny takes a bath, we get symbolism tied to the death of Nissa Nissa, and the moon, and the waking of dragons, the forging of Lightbringer, and so on. And once again, I'll remind you, this is also the chapter of Danny having that dragon dream, where the dragon roasts her in dragon flame, and the flesh boils from her bones, and then she feels cleansed and renewed. So the idea of a Lightbringer forging and rebirth, dragon magical ceremony, being tied to a bath, is really woven all throughout this chapter. Now let's check out Daenerys swimming in yet another iteration of the Green Sea, this time with her trusty green dragon at her side. The Jade Empress Nissa Nissa. This section is dedicated to the Long Night's Watch. Sharon Aes dread ferryman of the north, wielder of the staff of the gods, a weirwood staff banded in Valyrian steel. Synxia, frozen fire queen of the summer snows and burner of winter's wick. Blue raven of the lightning peck, the frozen thunderbolt whose words are, the way must be tried. And the smiling wolf lord Stephen Stark of the broken tower, Jedi of just ice, he who awaits the corn king. Now, don't get too excited about the section title here. I'm not starting new tinfoil about a hidden line of gemstone emperors or anything like that. This isn't about bloodlines. We are still firmly planting our feet in the realm of the green sea symbolism. And we're going to talk about jade and the jade sea and a lot of Danny's stuff in Karth. So there you go. Danny's the jade empress, Nissa Nissa, for at least... 
for at least these scenes. Now, what I'd like to do next is actually to tie the green sea wordplay to Regal, the green dragon, which is going to be very easy, and I think you're going to like it. Now, as we've already seen, Regal was born amidst blood and fire on the green Dothraki Sea, just as Danny was reborn there. We know that the cracking of his green egg was like thunder, a la the storm god's thunderbolt that set the Grey King's tree ablaze, which is really a weirwood reference. And we know that the burning logs with secret hearts exploded as Regal's egg hatched in the bonfire. And of course, burning logs with secret hearts are another weirwood reference, since they're heart trees, which symbolize burning trees. We also know that Regal was named for Rhaegar, who died on the green banks of the Trident, which is a river named for the weapon of a sea god. We've already seen that the green of Regal's scales can be described as the green of moss in the deep woods at dusk just before the last light fades, which, now that we look at it again, seems to contain a deep wood mott reference, since it's the moss in a deep wood at dusk. That's good, because the ocean-like forest of Deepwood Mutt was chock-full of green seer-slash-green-sea puns. Of course, the green of moss in the deep wood description also matches the description of the eyes of some green seers, or green dreamers like Jojen. So as you can see, this greenest moss description is yet another clue about green seers hidden in the language used to describe our fearsome green dragon, Regal. But there's another description of Regal's green scales in A Dance with Dragons when Danny goes down into the pit beneath the pyramid with Sir Barristan. And it leads us, unsurprisingly, right back to green seer symbolism pretty quickly. Rhaegar wore matching chains. In the light of Selmy's lantern, his scales gleamed like jade. That's not the only time that Rhaegal is associated with jade. When the Tourmaline Brotherhood of Karth gives her a three-headed dragon crown, the heads are made of ivory, onyx, and jade for the colors of her three dragons. And another time in A Clash of Kings, there's a line about Regal's jade green wings, giving us the magic number of three jade references for Regal. Now, why is jade important? Well, thinking back to Melisandre's voice being flavored with the music of the Jade Sea during the Lightbringer forging ritual on Dragonstone, and how Jade Sea could be translated as Green Sea, comparing Regal's green to jade is akin to likening it to the green of the sea. Remembering that Regal was called a green serpent and that his egg has a deep green shell, he's basically a jade green deep sea serpent. He also compares very well to Renly's armor, which was like a deep green pond, but also a deep green wood, with the gold fastenings gleaming like distant fires in that wood. Pretty sure there is some fire lurking beneath Regal's forest green and jade green scales, I think it's safe to say. In other words, the two descriptions of the scales of the green dragon both allude to green seeing. The green of moss on trees, like the eyes of green seers, and the green of jade, alluding to the jade sea, a.k.a. the green sea. The other major thing that jade calls out to in A Song of Ice and Fire is the jade demon, a.k.a. wildfire. Wildfire appears to be part of the green sea symbolism, just like the green dragon and the sea dragon. Aegon the Unworthy's wooden dragons were filled with the jade demon, for example, and those jade dragon demons set the king's wood on fire and made a bunch of burning trees. Dragons themselves are like demons, and they come from Ashai on the Jade Sea, and Regal, the jade green demon dragon, is full of fire, 
which, although is mostly yellow and red and orange, is sometimes said to be laced with green. At the Battle of the Blackwater, we saw a 50-foot-tall jade demon hatched from a ship full of wildfire, which is a nice combination of the burning ship as sea dragon symbolism and the jade demon wildfire symbolism. So in terms of green sea or dragon symbols in general, we've got the sea dragon, the green dragon, and green wildfire, the jade demon. And they're basically all interchangeable. They are all getting at the same idea with similar combinations of symbols. And they often appear together with one another. And Regal, most importantly, is tied to all of them. Now the real fun begins when Regal, the jade green sea dragon, goes to the jade sea. Well, to Karth by the Jade Sea, but close enough. It's really amazing how much Regal hogs the spotlight in these scenes by the Jade Sea, I have to say. But before we get to that, let me briefly introduce the Jade Sea itself, because, you know, you might think I'm being over-eager by saying that the Jade Sea equals the Green Sea, simply because Jade is green. Well, let's start with a fun Easter egg, which lumps the Jade Sea in with some pretty notable companions and actual, literal... In the person, in the flesh, green seeing. Oops, it looks like it was right in the first book. Almost like George planned ahead or something. He lifted his eyes and saw clear across the narrow sea, to the free cities and the green Dothraki sea and beyond, to Veus Dothrak under its mountain, to the fabled lands of the Jade Sea, to a shy by the shadow where dragons stirred beneath the sunrise. That was from Bran's Coma Dream Vision in A Game of Thrones, of course. And you'll notice the green seer, green sea wordplay that Martin worked in here. Bran is actually and literally using his fledgling green seer ability here. And in this vision, he green seas across the narrow sea, and then to the green Dothraki Sea, and then to the Jade Sea. I mean, that's enough green sea wordplay to overwhelm even Ravenous Reader. Ah, just kidding. Ravenous Reader has an infinite threshold for wordplay. This I can say for a certainty. But here's one even Ravenous might have missed. The dragons are stirring beneath the sunrise. Stirring like a latte or a smoothie. These are water dragons we're talking about. Well, I, I kid. I mean, I don't know if that's really meant to be a sea dragon clue, the word stirring. But seeing across the narrow sea to the green Dothraki Sea and then to the Jade Sea while green seeing... That is no accident, that I can assure you. And once again, we see the suggestion of there being a link between the dragons and dragon lords from a shy by the shadow and green seers. Or, said another way, Bran finds himself in the green dream, and what is he doing? He's imagining dragons! <laughs> dragons always exist inside the green sea and inside the dreams of the green seer, at least as far as we have seen so far. Sorry, I'm having too much fun with this wordplay stuff. Anyways, Danny loves to dream of dragons more than anyone. And in her Wake the Dragon dream, she also dreams of her ancestors from the Great Empire of the Dawn. Or at least, she dreams of some uh, Valerian-looking people, some kingly ghosts, which I have interpreted as being her ancestors from the Great Empire of the Dawn. And that's something we discussed at length in our episode with History of Westeros which you can find both on the History of Westeros YouTube channel and my own YouTube channel. In any case, the rulers of the Great Empire of the Dawn are named after gemstones, and there were eight that we are given. Four of these gemstones appear in the eyes of the kingly ghosts in Danny's Wake the Dragon Dream, and those would be Opal, Amethyst, Tourmaline, and Jade. Now, all of these kingly ghosts have silver-gold hair, 
like a Valerian or a Targaryen, and they all have flaming swords, but they each have eyes according to these four gems. So the one with amethyst eyes obviously makes for a model Valerian or Targaryen, but what do we call the dragonlord ghost with jade green eyes? A green dragon? The jade is specifically found in the eyes here, so this really does seem like a symbolic depiction of green seeing, which is incorporating jade and dragonlords. Pretty good stuff. I found another Easter egg-like companion to the Jade Sea Dragon concept in the World of Ice and Fire, which actually does bring us to the shores of the Jade Sea in the Empire of Yi-Ti. There's a little sidebar section that gives us a long list of various Yi-Tish emperors of note from various dynasties named after different colors, and there we read of the Sea Green Emperors. Hmm, interesting. Sea Green Emperors. Let's take a look at those guys, right? While their names may have been taken for their dominance at sea, for we are told of the 6th, 7th, and 8th of the Sea Green Emperors. Under whose rule the empire reached the apex of its power. Jahar conquered Lang, Jarjok took Greater Morag, Jarhan exacted tribute from Karth, Old Geese, Ashai, and other far-flung lands, and traded with Valyria. As you can see, all these conquests would have been made by sea, so the Sea Green Emperors were indeed skilled sailors who ruled over the Jade Sea. This is a perfect Green Seer metaphor. The Sea Green Emperors ruled over the Jade Sea. It's pretty, I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's very straightforward. Even better is Jarhar, the Sea Green Emperor, and his conquest of Lang. And thanks to Colin Longstrider, the eighth spoke of the Wandering Wheel for this find. Legends persist that the Old Ones still live beneath the jungle of Lang. So many of the warriors that Jarhar sent down below the ruins returned mad or not at all that the god emperor finally decreed the vast underground city's ruins should be sealed up and forgotten. Even today, it is forbidden to enter such places under penalty of torture and death. If you've watched the collaboration that I did on the Ideas of Ice and Fire YouTube channel called Hidden Magical Creatures, you know that I associate Lang and the Old Ones with Horned Lord mythology. And I've got more to come on this as well in the future. The haunted caves beneath Lang certainly seem like the familiar green seer cavern hollow hill symbolism, with a nod to Gendel and Gorn's legend of being lost in the caves to boot. And who was sending soldiers down into these caves? The sea green god emperor Jarhar. One has to wonder about the implications of Jarhar sealing up these caves. Could it be that sealing up the Weirwood Net will be a solution to the problems of magical imbalance in the story? I think that does make a certain amount of sense, and it's one of the possibilities I've always considered. Now, sitting aside the Jade Gates, which provide entrance to the Jade Sea, is, of course, the oldest and greatest city in the world, or whatever that little saying is, Karth. Koth, not Quarth, Koth. And when Danny, the sometimes sea dragon, goes to Karth, we find some things worth talking about, so let's go there. In particular, there's some heavy symbolism going on with the Pureborn that pertains to sea dragons and green seers both. It's a familiar combination, right? So to begin with, Daenerys is going to them, seeking boats to carry her and her dragons and her army back to Westeros. So she's seeking sea dragon boats, in other words, just as the boats which eventually do carry her back to Westeros are named after dragons, Beleriand, Meraxes, and Vagar, if you recall. And wouldn't you know it, to go before these pureborn to beg for sea dragon boats, she's going to dress in green and make herself a green dragon. 
Rhaegal hissed and dug sharp black claws into her bare shoulder as Danny stretched out a hand for the wines. Wincing, she shifted him to her other shoulder, where he could claw her gown instead of her skin. She was garbed after the Carthine fashion. Zaro had warned her that the enthroned would never listen to a Dothraki, so she had taken care to go before them in flowing green samite with one bared breast, silvered sandals on her feet, with a belt of black and white pearls around her waist. Notice the black and white pearls attached to Dany's green dress. Pearls are distinct moon symbols, so this implies black and white moons, or maybe even black and white moon meteors. This makes for a great compliment to the green dress, because she's now wearing the colors of her dragons, black, white, and green, and also telling us a story about green dragons and two moons. Pulling this palanquin are two bowls, one white and one black, again suggesting a white moon and a black moon. To cap it off, Rhaegal the green dragon perches on her green dress. It seems that she only brought the green dragon with her to see the pureborn. It's one of those double symbols where Danny wears green and is thus a green dragon herself, and then she also wears the green dragon like a garment. Danny is also calling out to the Amethyst Empress and Nissa Nissa here as well. The naked breast of Carthine fashion seems like an allusion to the tale of Lightbringer's forging, where Azor Ahai told Nissa Nissa to bear her breast to the sword. Had tipped someone on the internet a long time ago whose name I cannot recall, sorry. It's just one of those old form ideas. Anyways, just before the paragraph above, it says... Danny's tight silver collar was chafing against her throat. She unfastened it and flung it aside. The collar was set with an enchanted amethyst Zaro swore would protect her against all poisons. This works very well as a parallel to Mel's ruby choker necklace, which also seems to protect her from poison. But of course, it's an amethyst, because that's appropriate for Daenerys, the amethyst empress reborn, trademark Durand Durandin. Now returning to the pureborn themselves, we find green seer clues. As you just heard, they are also called the enthroned, and enthroned is the exact word used for the singers who are enthroned on their weirwood thrones in Bloodraven's cave. The pureborn even have old wooden thrones. I kid you not. The pureborn heard her pleas from great wooden seats of their ancestors, rising in curved tiers from a marble floor to a high-domed ceiling painted with scenes of Karth's vanished glory. Great wooden thrones of their ancestors really would be a good description of Greenseer thrones, thrones which literally contain the spirits of a Greenseer's ancestors, as well as every scene of vanished glory in the history of humankind, and then some. Descendants of the ancient kings and queens of Karth, the pureborn commanded the civic guard and the fleet of ornate allies that ruled the straits between the seas. Danny wanted that fleet, or part of it, and some of their soldiers as well. There's another emphasis of their very old blood, and then we learn that they command the fleets, the very boats that Danny wants to make sea dragons. And then there's one final green seer clue. After describing the way in which each wooden throne was bedecked with jewels, including jade, we read that... Yet the men who sat in them seemed so listless and world-weary that they might have been asleep. Oh man, they're dreamers in wooden thrones with very old blood. They rule the Jade Gates, which give entrance to the Jade Sea. They bestow sea dragons upon seekers. Or not. Dany's role here is of one seeking to be a green dragon, and though she is denied, she does ultimately get her fleet of three sea dragon boats, 
uh, that carry her to her next destination, with her dragons diving into the water like sea dragons all the way. As Danny is making her way through Karth in Zaro's palanquin, having this conversation about the pureborn and how lousy it went, we get another green dragon, green sea clue. She stroked Rhaegal. The green dragon closed his teeth around the meat of her hand and nipped hard. Outside, the great city murmured and thrummed and seethed, all its myriad voices blending into one low sound, like the surge of the sea. Basically, what's happening here is that Danny is a green dragon by virtue of her green dress. She's wearing her green dragon, and now she's navigating through a surging sea. Regal and she are both sea dragons now, in other words. Similarly, Regal sniffs the wine and hisses, provoking Zaro to say that, oh, he's got a good nose, and they should really sail to the Jade Sea to get some really good wine, presumably wine that the green dragon might approve of, because it comes from the Jade Sea, of course. Right? I'll also point out the last line of the quote we just pulled. Myriad voices blending into one low sound like the surge of the sea. This line epitomizes the concept of the hive mind, which is made up of all the dead singers, the myriad voices. And this is the exact thing that makes up the weirwoodnet, the thing we're calling the green sea. This is exactly the sea that the green dragon must navigate. So this is a really nice clue from Martin here to think about voices blending into one and forming a hive mind and that being like the sea. There's another curious call-out to the Great Empire of the Dawn in this sequence as well. Danny is asking Zara for ships, and he, in turn, is listing all the things that he's already given her, including those magnificent black-and-white bulls, whose horns are inlaid with gemstones. Danny says, Yes, but it was ships and soldiers I wanted. And then a moment later, My bullocks cannot carry me across the water. Those lunar bullocks are not sea dragons yet, in other words. Zaro has also given her a thousand knights in shining armor from maybe a long time ago, maybe. Uh, but these knights are miniature knights. They're tiny statue knights in armor of gold and silver. And they were made of jade and beryl and onyx and tourmaline, of amber and opal and amethyst. Setting aside the beryl and the amber, we have five out of the eight gemstones of the rulers of the Great Empire of the Dawn listed here, including the four specifically named in Danny's Wake the Dragon dream, Tourmaline, Opal, Amethyst, and Jade. Now, a thousand sword-like things, the, the miniature knights, would generally seem to be a symbol of the meteor shower of a thousand thousand dragons, and gemstones are very often equated with stars, so this is kind of like a meteor shower decked out in the trappings of the Great Empire. The way I would interpret this is as a hint that the meteor shower was triggered by the Great Empire of the Dawn, by the Bloodstone Emperor, to be exact. Now, perhaps best of all, just as Danny is pointing out that the bulls are not ships, the palanquin is forced to come to a halt, because the crowd has stopped to ogle at, wait for it, a fire sorcerer, that's right. This is where the fire mage appears to climb the fiery ladder, and then Quaid of the Shadow appears to tell Danny that her dragons have made magic stronger in the world. The path of the green sea dragon leads to a fire sorcerer, and a shadow sorcerer from a shy thrown in for good measure. The actual quote here is definitely worth pulling, so take a listen. Jogo rode back to her. A fire mage, Khaleesi. I want to see. Then you must... The Dothraki offered a hand down. 
When she took it, he pulled her up onto his horse and sat her in front of him, where she could see over the heads of the crowd. The fire mage had conjured a ladder in the air, a crackling orange ladder of swirling flame that rose unsupported from the floor of the bazaar, reaching toward the high latticed roof. We've discussed the notion of Odin riding a shamanic horse to journey throughout the cosmos before when talking about Yggdrasil, and we're actually going to go further with that topic in the next episode and discuss Sleipnir, which is also a kind of astral projection horse that Odin rides. Sleipnir is famously a gray horse, and Danny just so happens to ride a gray horse all around the green Dothraki Sea, so... That's going to be a fun episode, and actually started as a part of this one, but it got too long, and I cut it in half, yada yada yada. In any case, you can see that astral projection horse symbolism at work here, as Danny mounts a horse in order to see, just as Odin mounted Yggdrasil, his gallows horse, to see the runes. Now, instead of seeing the runes, although we have seen red priests make fiery glyphs appear in the air, which is basically like runes, Danny is seeing the mage and his fiery ladder. She's glimpsing a stairway to heaven, in other words. The key expression here is latticed roof. The word lattice or lattice work is always a lattice work of stars keyword in a song of ice and fire. Take it from me. So this fire mage climbing his ladder is signifying just what you'd think. He's trying to use fire magic to ascend to heaven. And so, of course, he disappears upon reaching the top. Looks like he got there. <laughs> got where he wanted to go. Thanks to Stone Dancer, the Mind's Eye, World Master of the Trident, for the Lattice Find. Right after that, Quaid appears. When the fiery ladder stood forty feet high, the mage leapt forward and began to climb it, scrambling up hand over hand as quick as a monkey. Each rung he touched dissolved behind him, leaving no more than a wisp of silver smoke. When he reached the top, the ladder was gone, and so was he. A fine trick announced Jogo with admiration. No trick, a woman said in the common tongue. Danny had not noticed Quaith in the crowd, yet there she stood, eyes wet and shiny behind the implacable red lacquer mask. What mean you, my lady? Half a year gone, that man could scarcely wake fire from dragon glass. He had some small skill with powders and wildfire, sufficient to entrance a crowd while his cutpurses did their work. He could walk across hot coals and make burning roses bloom in the air, but he could no more aspire to climb the fiery ladder than a common fisherman could hope to catch a kraken in his nets. If you ask me, I'd say that Quaid is playing the role of an undead Nissa Nissa figure inside the weirwood net, very like Stoneheart or the ghost of Highheart. She wears a red lacquer mask, which is also referred to as a painted wooden mask, and this seems a good parallel to the carved red faces on the weirwood trees, which are basically like wooden masks for the green seers inside. Quaith contacts Danny inside of dreams and visions, in a way that is very much parallel with Blood Raven's pupillage of Bran through dreams, and of course Quaith is from a shy, representative of the hot hell underworld that seems to be inside the weirwood net. In this scene, Quaithe's eyes are wet and shiny, which might hint at the sea that lies behind the weirwood mask. And look, she's making deep sea analogies. Welcome to the club, Quaithe. Before the dragons were reborn into the world, this mage could no more hope to ascend the fiery ladder than to catch a kraken in its nets, she says. That's kind of funny because Azor High climbing the fiery ladder to the stars and entering the weirwood net is akin to the weirwood net catching a sea monster or a sea dragon. 
Kraken arms are likened to tree roots in a couple of scenes by George. So the idea of a kraken in a net kind of seems like George is making his own weirwood net joke here. One thinks of Sam the Night's Watch brother, who is a black leviathan coming up out of the well at the night fort and then flopping around in a puddle of moonlight whilst ensnared in Mira Reed's net. Whether it's a kraken or leviathan or sea dragon, the idea is we're catching sea monsters in a net. So let's step back and look at the overall sequence here. George shows us several versions of Danny as a dragon in the green sea, from entreating the pureborn on their wooden thrones, to sailing through the sea of people on her palanquin, to the very fact that it all happens within smelling distance of the Jade Sea. And then we get a bunch of dragon waking and fire of the gods lightbringer forging symbolism at the very end. Just as Danny's third chapter, immersing herself in the green sea, ended with the story of the waking of the dragons from the moon, this voyage through the various seas ends with a fire mage ascending to heaven and Quave discussing the reemergence of dragons and magic to the world. So whether it's the green Dothraki Sea or the Jade Sea or just a nice hot bath, Danny is going swimming. And now we know what that's about. Quave is actually delivering us a message here about Nissa Nissa's death, enabling Azor Ahai to climb the fiery ladder into the stars. I hope you can see that. Quave is literally telling Danny that this fiery mage would not have been able to scale the ladder to the sky before she birthed the dragons, meaning that her moon death and dragon birthing ritual on the green sea is what opened the doors to heaven for this Azor High figure climbing the ladder. This is entirely in keeping with the weirwood door symbolism that we've been finding. Nissa Nissa is like a door through which Azor High enters the weirwood net, where he can then do astral projection and fly amongst the stars. Nissa Nissa's magic is what makes it possible, and in particular, her death and transformation and merging with the green sea is what makes it possible. Even better, when we turn our attention back to that alchemical wedding, we find a perfect parallel to this scene with the fire mage and the fiery ladder. That's right, when we peer into Danny's Lightbringer bonfire, we see that it's creating a smoky stallion that Drogo can ride into the stars. Another step, and Danny could feel the heat of the sand on the soles of her feet, even through her sandals. Sweat ran down her thighs and between her breasts and in rivulets over her cheeks where tears had once run. Sajora was shouting behind her, but he did not matter any more, only the fire mattered. The flames were so beautiful, the loveliest things she had ever seen, each one a sorcerer robed in yellow and orange and scarlet, swirling long, smoky cloaks. She saw crimson fire lions and great yellow serpents and unicorns made of pale blue flame. She saw fish and foxes and monsters, wolves and bright birds and flowering trees, each more beautiful than the last. She saw a horse, a great grey stallion, lined in smoke, its flowing mane and nimbus of blue flame. Yes, my love, my sun and stars, yes, mount now, ride now. Her vest had begun to smoulder, so Danny shrugged it off and let it fall to the ground. The painted leather burst into sudden flame as she skipped closer to the fire, her breasts bare to the blaze, streams of milk flowing from her red and swollen nipples. Now, she thought, now, and for an instant she glimpsed Carl Drogo before her, mounted on his smoky stallion a flaming lash in his hand. He smiled, and the whips snaked down at the pyre, hissing. Hat tip to Unchained, the great Westeros, 
for first spotting this gray stallion as Sleipnir, the gray astral projection horse. And again, we're going to go to town on astral projection horses in the next episode. But you can see the definite parallels to the fire mage scene in Karth here. We see the fiery sorcerers appear in the flames, a perfect match to the fire mage climbing the ladder. And by the end, Drogo himself has become a fiery sorcerer. He's mounting the gray stallion made up of fire and smoke, the one which rises like a mushroom cloud from the Lightbringer bonfire where the moon dies. We know that the Dothraki believe that their valiant dead become stars in the sky, a fiery kalasar riding through the nightlands, through the celestial sea of space, if you will. Drogo is identified with the red comet by Daenerys in this scene, so what's happening here, according to Dothraki beliefs and Danny's perceptions, is that Drogo is riding the smoky stallion into space, where he then exchanges that mount for the red comet as his celestial stallion. And all of this is enabled by Daenerys and Drogo creating the alchemical wedding bonfire in the Green Sea, just as the fire mage in Karth is only able to climb the fiery ladder to the stars because Danny has brought magic back into the world by creating the alchemical wedding bonfire. Even though Drogo's fiery ghost in the pyre here is a symbolic depiction of Azor High Reborn, we also know that Daenerys becomes Azor High Reborn in her own right after the alchemical wedding. And accordingly, we find that Daenerys shares the same astral projection horse and comet riding symbolism that we see with post-death transformation Drogo. For example, we see Danny riding Drogon, just as reborn Drogo rode the comet. Drogon is a perfect analog to the Red Comet and Lightbringer and all that kind of stuff. We also see Danny riding her gray horse with a mane like silver smoke in the Green Sea, just as we see reborn Drogo ride the gray smoky stallion out of the Green Sea and into the stars. And at the end of the Green Dragon episode, we dropped that delightful quote about touching the comet that I'm going to keep quoting until we can fully wrap our brains around it. Across the tent, Rhaegal unfolded green wings to flap and flutter a half-foot before thumping to the carpet. When he landed, his tail lashed back and forth in fury, and he raised his head and screamed. If I had wings, I would want to fly too, Danny thought. The Targaryens of old had ridden upon Dragonback when they went to war, she tried to imagine what it would feel like to straddle a dragon's neck and soar high into the air. It would be like standing on a mountaintop, only better. The whole world would be spread out below. If I flew high enough, I could even see the Seven Kingdoms and reach up and touch the comet. Inspired by the green dragon's attempt at flight, Danny muses. If she could just fly high enough, she could see better and maybe even touch the comet. This passage reads a lot like Bran's vision of flying over the world and seeing the dragons beneath the sunrise in Ashai, and then all the way to the heart of winter in Westeros, I have to say. That's something that we're going to see as we continue to follow Danny's green seer symbolism, a convergence with Bran's symbolism. It does stand to reason, right? Many have already picked out that Danny's House of the Undying experience with a shade of the evening runs very much in parallel with Bran's Weirwood Pace session in Bloodraven's Cave, and I'm here to tell you that this is where it starts, not where it ends. This is where this episode ends, however, as going any further with the astral projection horse ideas will lead to another 10,000 words easy. 
We've covered a lot of ground today, and the simple idea of Daenerys manifesting so much green seer symbolism is a stunning revelation in and of itself, which gives us a lot to discuss. So please come join me and Sanri and Emma and some of the other myth heads this Sunday, November 11th, for the uh, follow-up Q&A live stream to this episode. We will discuss all of the stuff that we've gone over today and anything else that you guys want to discuss. So send in your questions either on Patreon or Twitter, Facebook, or anywhere that you can reach me. You can leave comments on the YouTube video, and I will collect those, and we will discuss them on Sunday. And, of course, you can always send questions to us uh, through the chat or through the Super Chat function. And then uh, in a few weeks, I'll be back with Weird Compendium 8, the Silver Seahorse, and we'll dive into the next round of Green Seer stuff. And just to sort of continue to tell you about what's coming up, we've got Fire and Blood coming out in a couple weeks. So, of course, we'll be doing, probably doing multiple episodes to cover that. But in particular, we'll be doing a live stream on the Sunday immediately following the release of the book. And we'll have a big round table and we'll discuss that. So, yeah, lots coming up. But uh, most of all, come join us this Sunday, the 11th, at 3 Eastern, on the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel, where we'll have a follow-up Q&A to this episode and talk about some of this amazing Danny Green Sea stuff. Like I said, it's definitely a lot to chew on. Is Danny a Green Seer, or is this just symbolism? That's one of the big questions we'll be answering. So, see you then, guys. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.